Turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We continue in this verse-by-verse study, and again next week we'll take a break from that, but as of today, we are in chapter 11. We finished chapter 10 last week. Don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we can put one in your hand. Glad to do that. Looks like, looks like everybody's got one. Could be a record. It's a daylight savings time record. Everyone had a Bible. Wow. And if you have a phone, you have one as well. You know, so you've got that uh, working for you. I prefer pages myself. I, I think I have too much digital stimuli as it is, but that's just me. Uh, my wife agrees, um, so I, I love the pages. But nevertheless, whatever format you're using, let's look, pick it up. Verse 1, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed there two more days uh, in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, Lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you were going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Someone's getting a wake-up call right now. Then his disciples said, they thought you weren't, you didn't know that it was daylight. We had someone in the 8.30 service came like an hour late. So not everyone knew this. So just, maybe someone's reminding you. Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe, nevertheless, let us go to him. And Thomas, who was called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, that we may die with him. We'll get to that. So when Jesus came, verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you again. Asking, Lord, we know your word has power. We know I don't even need to speak about it. Just read it. It has power. But Lord, we pray that your spirit would illuminate it that much more. 
Let it go deeper, drive deeper into our souls, into the inner man, inner woman that is here or watching online. Lord, that you would give me your help, your strength, your anointing. I could never do justice to your word, but Lord, I ask that I would be faithful and that you would help me deliver what you want delivered. And then, Lord, you take by your Holy Spirit, speak individually to each person what they need, for only you know. We ask these things in your precious, holy, powerful name. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As we looked at in the previous two weeks, Jesus is the Good Shepherd. If he's your Lord and Savior, he's your personal shepherd. Chapter 10 was all about that illustration of Jesus being the shepherd, us being the sheep. He shepherds each of us individually. He's also the shepherd of this church. I'm simply an under-shepherd, under his authority, under his leading. And of course, we all were led as sheep as part of a flock. We're led by his word. We're led by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But this whole shepherd... And sheep understanding that we saw in chapter 10. That was new to the disciples. Remember it was rejected altogether by the Pharisees. They wanted no part of that analogy. You're not our shepherd. But the disciples, they're now living out the parable in chapter 10. They're living it out in chapter 11. That Jesus, what are they living out? They're living out that Jesus, their shepherd, takes them into pasture out of pasture, into pasture, out of pasture. Then he knows exactly what they need, where they need to be, how they can best mature and produce other sheep. I don't know how I best mature. God knows how I best mature. He knows how I'm going to produce more sheep. You too. Now remember, sheep don't know what they don't know. Sheep are not the brightest, and neither are we, right? I, I shared this week uh, on my Facebook page, you know, that uh, wisdom, uh, intellect, intelligence, education, none of those are substitutes for wisdom. Nothing's a substitute for Jesus leading us. We have really smart people surrounded by Ivy League grads in Washington, D.C. that make horrible decisions. Yes. 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 Because intellect has nothing to do with wisdom. Mm -hmm. We need the good shepherd. Additionally, sheep get lost. They're defenseless without a shepherd. But you know what? Sheep are valuable. Sheep are valuable if they're protected and cared for. But they're vulnerable without the leading of a shepherd. Now Jesus, mind you, he knows all of this. That's why he's the one that told the parable in chapter 10. And his teaching, as well as the Old Testament foreshadows, they were for the disciples to know, they're for us to know, that we are incapable without the Lord. Say, so, no, I've got, I've got all kinds of skills and talents I can do. Can you make yourself breathe? Can you make your heart work? Can you make sure your kidneys are functioning correctly? No. We are only here by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. We didn't make ourselves be alive today. I mean, you might have done some smart things, like try and get to bed early last night, or maybe you didn't. Now you're paying the price this morning. But, um, but again, those things don't keep us 
God keeps us. He's the one that keeps our cells operational. But we also have to know, we're learning that we have to fully trust Him. Fully trust Him. Not partial, but learning to fully trust Him. Now trust is essential between sheep and shepherd. Trust is essential. Sheep have to trust the shepherd. Remember, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know the voice of the shepherd. They trust the shepherd. And once the sheep know his voice, they can follow his every word, his every single step. Now as people, that's easier said than done, isn't it? We know a lot of times what to do, and we still don't do it. We know what he said, and we put it off. Unlike sheep, now sheep can't talk. They don't think and analyze things. We do at 2 in the morning, at 3 in the morning, driving into work. No, God says you can think about it, analyze it. I want you to learn to follow by faith. Here in chapter 11, you can analyze all this and make your head spin. Or you can follow what Jesus is about to do. And here in chapter 11, Jesus is going to build. Remember, he's teaching his sheep to follow him. He's going to build greater trust and greater faith. They already believe in him, but he wants them to believe even deeper. Brother and sister, whether you're online or whether you're here this morning, you might already believe in Jesus. He wants you to believe in him more than you already do. You know, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine... They're fine. Their faith has to go deeper than it did 10 weeks ago. It's more real. The process of believing in him more, of gaining that trust, it will require acknowledging and fully understanding that we're very, very limited. We're so limited, we can do nothing apart from Jesus. I've said it many times, John chapter 15. While at the same time, we have to choose to trust him. In spite of the circumstances. And know that Jesus is still in control. And I don't know if you believe this or not, but he's right on schedule. His return is right on schedule. His first coming was right on schedule. If you're taking notes this morning, you see the title this morning. Sometimes he waits. Sometimes he waits. For the glory of God and for our spiritual gain. How many of you have things in your life right now or you have had, maybe recently, that you still don't know why God has allowed them. You have no idea why God has allowed this. I have, I have two hands up. I have one for all y'all, because I do. I have many things like this. I'm like, Lord, why? I don't understand this. Why would you allow this? Why isn't this gone by now? Why is this problem still there? Or how we get through it. Lord, how do we get through this? For one... Don't overthink it. Sheep don't overthink things. Human sheep do. Real sheep, not as much. Human sheep overthink everything. And if you're analytical like me, you double, triple think it. Which is really a problem. Now, we can notice them, but we don't have to overthink them. When I'm driving down the highway, I will notice things, but I'm not supposed to sit there and fix on it and crash into something. You can notice it, but don't. Say, Lord... Keep my eyes on you, just like your eyes on the highway. To the disciples' credit, and I'm including the sisters of Lazarus in this, they don't seem to overthink what's taking place. They do have some thoughts, and Jesus is going to 
look at them and shake his head a little bit a few times. But they don't go too much in overthinking this. But, but I'm sure they have their thoughts, and we know they have their thoughts about what's going on here. But they receive bit by bit from Jesus. He kind of takes them in little steps at a time from where he's at all the way to Bethany and what's going to take place. And that's often how we're going to go through trials. It's going to be a step-by-step process. We want it to be over in a day. It's not. God takes us through different gates, if you will, of his wisdom, his understanding, his learning. It's one little bit of grace at a time. Grace upon grace. If you're taking notes, the first thing we'll look at this morning, first bullet point, if you will, a desperate message. And it's there in verse 1. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and his sister Martha. This was the Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. Understand that there's a transition taking place from chapter 10, where Jesus has been dialoguing with the Pharisees, and they've been resisting him, wanting to stone him, and he gave that whole analogy um, of the illustration of the shepherd and the sheep. But there's a transition from chapter 10 and 11. Jesus, if you recall, at the end of chapter 10, 10 had gone beyond the Jordan. Those of you who have been to Israel a few times, you know that Jerusalem, uh, if you go east of Jerusalem, you get to Jericho. If you go past Jericho, you go over the Jordan River. Then you're in the country of Jordan. Jesus had gone past the Jordan, past where John had been baptizing, past where John had been preaching, and there he had been teaching the disciples. And remember, many had come there, and many had even believed in him there. Now, by this time, this is in the third year of Jesus' ministry. He's very close. He's getting very close to the cross. He's in the third year of his ministry. The ministry of John has faded. John the Baptist has faded. John decreased while Jesus, what? Increased. And now Jesus has the full attention of all of Israel. Jesus, the attention is on him. He's been to the temple numerous times. He's done these great miracles there. Uh, the high priest, uh, or the, the priesthood um, and the Pharisees, they want him dead. But the full attention is on Jesus. John the Baptist had prepared the way for the way. John had prepared the way for the way, the truth, and the life. And now Jesus, from chapter 11, now the transition why this matters, is chapter 11 onward. You have chapters 1 through 10 of John showing us the life and ministry of Jesus. 11 through 21 is all the way Jesus going to the cross and the resurrection. In other words, all the rest of the chapters is him fixed on the cross. Completely focused on going to the cross. The mission of the cross. Even this miracle, this raising of Lazarus, which we won't, now you are free to read ahead in your Bibles. You can read how the story ends. It's a great story. It ends in an awesome way. But we'll look at it uh, Sunday, April 2nd, and when we'll do the part two of this, because we've got a two-week gap here. But we don't have a four-day gap like Jesus here. We have a two-week gap. And when we get to that, um, even though it's an amazing miracle, it actually will be connected to the acceleration of Jesus' death and that Passover week. This miracle here is directly related to them being further infuriated to the point that they have to kill Jesus. They're determined to do it. But all that's by God's design. Every little circumstance that God allows in your life, 
And God allows even the life of Jesus. It's all God allowed. Now in Jesus' case, now there's dumb things we do that were outside the will of God. Jesus never did anything outside the will of God. So there is a fundamental difference in us too. There's things that God allows and there's things that were just flat out our fault. There's nothing that ever happened to Jesus that was his fault. He totally walked into, again, as I told the first service, Jesus was not on a risk mitigation tour. He was on a mission to the cross tour. He wasn't trying to avoid anything. Now Jesus is himself the good shepherd. We have that well established. But he'll now be entering from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 20, uh, 19, uh, from from now all the way through chapters 19 and 20, Jesus will be entering into, he's the good shepherd, but he's going to be entering into the valley of the shadow of death. Because he's not only the shepherd, he's also the spotless lamb. So he's himself the shepherd, but he's also the sacrifice. And he's the high priest. He's all these things at the same time. But even as he will trod towards the cross, starting here in chapter 11, even as he will trod towards the cross... The beautiful thing is he will still care for his sheep every step of the way. Even on the cross, even when he's stretched out on the cross, he'll care for his own mother and say, John, take care of her. Shepherding even with his final breaths. And while he is on the other side of the Jordan, at least that's where we believe he probably is at this point, building up and strengthening the disciples and perhaps uh, some of the others that have recently believed in him, he receives this urgent message from two other of his disciples, two women. Two women who have also come to believe in Jesus. They're sisters. They are two faithful sisters, two faithful disciples of Jesus. They loved him dearly. They've shown him love and hospitality. Many of you are familiar with the story in Luke chapter 10 where Martha is sweeping and cooking up biscuits and doing all kinds of stuff for Jesus. I don't know if biscuits, but, but it, she's cooking all kinds of stuff. And Mary, in her mind, is being lazy, sitting at the feet of Jesus, just listening to Jesus teach, and, and Martha's getting stressed out about it. Same two sisters. Same ones. But they loved the Lord. They were ministering to him there. Even though Jesus set Martha straight there, both those sisters loved him dearly. Now John prefaces here by saying, this is the Mary that anointed Jesus with oil and then washed it with her hair. Now that will actually come in chapter 12. Uh, if you read it chrono chronologically, John would have phrased it this way if he, was, he wasn't trying to do it chronologically. But if he was, he would have said, this is the one who will wash his feet with oil and her hair. The reason John doesn't say it that way is his audience was aware of both events. This is my own personal view. I've looked at different theologians' view of it. My own personal view is that John presents it to the audience because I believe he knew that people were aware of both events but didn't understand the connection to both events. In other words, they didn't realize, oh, this we are like, oh, I didn't realize the sister of him was the same person that did the oil. I heard about the, the, the brother rising from the dead. I heard about the oil thing. I didn't realize they were all in the same family. Yes, and they were only a short period apart from each other. So John is simply saying that to the audience, you know about that event, and you know you're about to hear about this event, but the two events are actually connected. Same sisters, same family. And that's why he frames it that way, in, in my view. Um, but Mary and Martha, 
They're not with Jesus at this point. They're over in Bethany, which is at least a two days journey from where they happen to be. Jesus is probably still beyond the Jordan. They're in Bethany, which is two miles southeast of Jerusalem. And these two sisters, they have a great need. Jesus is, is far away. Uh, you can't send an email. You can't call. You have to send somebody who's willing to make the trip and deliver a handwritten note or a verbal message saying, take this to Jesus. Our brother's sick. And Jesus gets this message. Now, whether they have called a doctor, we don't know. And for example, Luke in the Bible is a physician. We don't know if they've called a physician. We don't know how many uh, other different steps they try to take to get healing for their brother. But nothing is working. But they do know this. They know Jesus has healed thousands of people. They know Jesus has raised people that have been lame for their entire life or blind as we saw the man blind from birth. So they know that they can send word to the one who can do more than any doctor by far. And Jesus though, he's with other people. He's ministering to other people. He's teaching. He's discipling. He's tending to other sheep. Remember he said, I have other sheep, not just in this flock. But they need him now. They need him right now. They, they need Jesus to stop worrying about other sheep and come to them. These sheep, you ever think that your sheep, you personal, are more important than the other sheep? Lord, this is sheep number, what is my number? You know, but we have a name. They need him right now. And it's a great reminder, though, to all of us that while you're praying, and maybe you have a desperate need here this morning, maybe someone online, and you have a desperate need that no one else knows about but you, millions of other believers around the world are praying right now to God just as desperate as you are. Millions. There's a lot of Christians on earth. There's, a lot, there's way more, the broad road, is, there's way more unsaved, but there's still a lot of Christians on earth, and millions of them have prayer requests right now that they are literally in tears over and thinking, when is God going to come to me? When is he going to help with my urgent situation? And with all those millions of prayers that Jesus is receiving, isn't it amazing he can handle all of them? Yes. I get overwhelmed when I get six, seven prayer requests on the same day, and I'm like, they're all big. And I'm like, Lord, I'm going to punt these to you, because I don't know what to do with them. We all, you ever been overwhelmed by too many things on your plate? Yes. That doesn't happen to Jesus. He doesn't get over. There's no such thing as too many things on his plate. Too many concerns. Too many people with needs. Jesus can handle them all. And even if he has to, he can turn back the clock. We just turn them on a dial. He can literally turn back the clock. Like where the sun stops. He did that once in the Old Testament. And he can raise a dead person if he has to. Amen? Amen. But I do love the sister's reminder. If you're going to plead with the Lord, use everything you got. The one you love. I'm, women are good. When they write a note, they hit it. They hit the mark. Strategic letter. They don't say much. Lord, the one you love. That's like an elbow. Some of you men will get one in the church service maybe. Like, remember our brother. Now, we can assume that Lazarus was not improving. We can assume he was not getting better. In fact, probably getting worse by the second. 
Which is why they send word to Jesus. They send word because he's not improving. They don't give any background. They don't give any details. They just say, the one you love is sick. Nothing else is mentioned. They don't talk about the type of sickness. They don't talk about he's got a high fever. They don't talk about any symptoms. They just say he's sick. And if it's urgent, just write it, go. We don't have time to give the details. And by the way, Jesus doesn't need the details. He actually knows the details. But sometimes the simplicity of a message underscores his urgency. Amen? Sometimes it's just, help! Jesus responds in verse 4. And when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not unto death. It doesn't say it won't involve death. He says, this sickness is not unto death. In other words, eventually Lazarus is going to really die. But it won't be from this sickness. Not his, not his final death. So... Jesus' words are well placed, but, the, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This sickness will not end in death, although, um, again, Lazarus eventually is going to die. He, the rapture of the church hasn't taken place, so he really will have an end point. But it won't be because of this sickness, although it will first appear that it will be this sickness, but it won't be. Because we know the end of the story. It won't end in death. It'll just involve death temporarily. But it's all for the glory of God and for the Son of God and the magnification of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, will be glorified. He'll be glorified in this miracle. We're still talking about it 2,000 years later. We're talking about it right now. That's how much glory there is. And we're giving all the glory to Jesus. We're not giving it to Martha. We're not giving it to Mary. We're not giving it to John. We're giving it to Jesus. We're like, he's the only one in this story that can fix this story. Everyone else is a bystander watching what can he do, what will he do. He'll also be glorified because this story will lead to his own impending death and his own resurrection will be directly connected to this event. It's not because of this event, but it's in the chain of events that God has strung together that are part of the divine will and plan of God. It'll all be directly connected to his path to the cross and that very Passover week where he will be condemned innocently, but condemned. Now let's look at verse 5. If you're taking notes, the second uh, point this morning, a devoted friend. We looked at a, um, a desperate message, a devoted friend, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I love those words. This is John the Apostle's own commentary on the story. This, there's things the Holy Spirit says, write this down, and then there's things the Holy Spirit allows John to comment. Of course, the Holy Spirit's still impressing it upon him, to be clear. But this is John's commentary. He doesn't have to add this point, but he does. John notes that Jesus did not just love the family. He loved each of them individually. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved Lazarus. He does not just love Calvary Chapel Richmond. He does not just love the body of Christ here in Virginia. He does not just love us as a family, but he loves us individually. He knows you by name, personally. He loves each sheep. He will leave the 99 for one sheep. Every sheep he loves individually. And as I mentioned before, the Apostle John... He was the last apostle to live. He outlived all the other apostles. All the others were died a martyr's death. 
John's the only one that didn't die a martyr's death, although they tried, Romans tried to boil him in oil, and God says, nope, his skin will not boil. You're going to, tough luck. You will not be able to kill him. He'll come home when I say he comes home. But John outlived all the other apostles, and he uh, loved to use the word love. He used the word love more than the synoptic gospels combined. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they follow the same kind of path and chronology, and mostly the same parables, not exclusively, but... Uh, but more than those three combined, John used the word love more in the book of John than the first three books of the gospel combined. And then the second most, uh, the second book that used the word love most in the New Testament is his epistle, 1 John. So both the first and the second most used books in the New Testament with the word love are attributed to John the Apostle. He wrote them both. In fact, John, when he was speaking of his own relationship with Jesus, you may have read a number of times where you'd see, that's an odd statement, where John will say something like this, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he didn't just say it once, he didn't say it twice, he didn't say it three times, he said it five times, and up on the screen. Uh, one time I heard, a really, <laughs> it was a lame teaching, I was like, all right, who is this hip pastor? He was call, talking about, and John would be a little prideful about talking about his love for Jesus loving him. That is totally a misrepresentation of the text. Uh, I only heard that a couple of times, and I was like, I don't know where they got that, but that is not the case at all. When John would say the disciple whom he loved, it was the opposite of being prideful. The Lord would not have him record it five times if it was that. Uh, no, actually, it was, John was humbled. John was amazed. I want you to understand this about the Apostle John, because God entrusted him to write the word love more times in those two books than all the other apostles. John was deeply amazed and blown away that Jesus loved him. And that's why he would write this. And that's why the Holy Spirit says, go ahead and write it again. No, write it again. Write it four times. Write it five times that Jesus loves you. John would have loved the kid's song, Yes, Jesus Loves Me. But John would say, hold on, time out. It's not a kid's song. It's an all of us song. It's not just for kids. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. And John is the one that wrote it numerous times. And he's the one that wrote John 3, 16 as well. The only time that story of Nicodemus is recorded here in the book of John. But it was never pride on John's part. It was, he was humbled that Jesus loved him. He still was amazed that Jesus loved him, that he had saved him. He was blown away by his salvation and the, the love Jesus has. But it's not just that. He was the one notating here that Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He was blown away that God loved every sheep. But he was the one that was personalizing for himself on a regular basis. Now let's look, look at verse 6. Moving forward, so when he had heard, Jesus had heard that he was sick, he promptly leaves. Nope. He stays there two more days. Two more days. Jesus' response, now we know how much he loves Lazarus. You would think he's going to immediately stop everything. And get to Bethany as quickly as he can. And by the way, if Jesus wants to get to Bethany in the blink of an eye, he can rapture himself there and do it, right? Yes. There's no limitations. Remember when they tried to stone him, he just all of a sudden, where'd he go? But he doesn't. You're thinking, what? 
I thought you loved Lazarus. Where's the urgency? Your response doesn't match the urgency. Just stay there for two days. Now Jesus is the only one over on the other side of the Jordan with that group of disciples. He's the only one that knows how urgent Lazarus's sickness really is. Because he had just said to the disciples, this, sick, this sickness is not unto death. So as far as they were concerned, it's not serious. Let's just continue on. And Jesus does. He continues teaching, continues whatever he's doing in building up these disciples. But Lazarus needs him. The sisters need him. By the way, the name Lazarus is the Greek word for the name Eleazar. And you've probably heard that name. It's the Greek form of Eleazar. And the name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my help. God had, his, had him name that way back when he was a baby for this specific point in time. That God would be his help in this great time of me. But nobody else, nobody else there that with Jesus is all that alarmed that Jesus hasn't dropped everything because Jesus said, this sickness will not lead to death. Then, well, it's not leading unto death. Then we just continue on with what we're doing. But for you and I, it may be that sometimes we think Jesus hasn't fully heard our need because he's not shown the urgency in the response, as we have had the urgency in the request. How the Lord responds to you and I and the things that He's allowed in our life is not always according, and I would say not always, I would say not often according to how we would expect. Amen? Amen. It's very times not the way we would expect Him to respond. Even His words, how He responds, a lot of times are like, only the Son of God could come up with these answers. Because he sees it all from a way bigger, a way different perspective than us. But at any rate, what Jesus says next in verse 7 tells us that he is heading in the direction of Lazarus. There's been a two-day delay, but he's heading in the direction of Lazarus and to his sisters Mary and Martha. He says in verse 7, then he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Again, because they had just been there. Let's go back. Or they've been there several times, actually. Every time there was one of the uh, feasts that were required of the men, Jesus would always go to Jerusalem. So each and every time that they went to Judea. So he says, let's go there again. In verse 7. Disciples, you've got to love these guys. They're just like us. They're learning. We're still learning. I'm 53, and I, sometimes I feel like I'm 3. Uh, in my faith at times, but they're not quite as concerned about Lazarus is as the sisters are. But they are very concerned about Jesus' safety. They consider themselves not only his disciples, but his bodyguards, although they've done a bad job because every time he's got out of a stoning jam, they didn't get him out of it. He got out of it. Remember, Peter, he thinks he's the bodyguard right up the last minute, grabs a sword. He's going to take off someone's ear. So they do love Jesus, and they consider themselves not only disciples, but we got your back. And he never needs their help, ever. <laughs> but they're concerned about his safety, and they say, Judea, that's where the Jews sought to stone you. And you're going there again. They somehow think that Jesus has forgotten all the facts. 
that Jesus forgot they tried to stone him. That he forgot he got away from them stoning him. That he's forgotten what's transpired. That he, forgots about the, that he forgot all about the danger in Judea. You can just see him looking at them like... Is there anything you guys can inform me of? Plus, on top of all that, he's God. He can change the circumstances if he wants to. He can make Judea disappear if he wants to. But in verse 9, we see here how Jesus, what he says to remind the disciples, he answers them, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. There's a fixed time. What Jesus is saying is God the Father has given Jesus a fixed amount of time. He had 33 years on the earth, three of which was his earthly ministry, years 30 through 33. So there's this fixed amount of time that God had preordained. No one else decided that it would be 33 years or there'd be three years and then a final week called the Passion Week, which is really Passover week. God fixed all those times he was slain before the foundation of the earth. Everything was fixed, prefixed in time, exactly to the Father's will. Every specific work, every step he would take, every miracle, every person he would touch, everything was preordained by the Father. So the light of his ministry, Jesus saying, is there not 12 hours a day? He's speaking of his earthly ministry. Is there not a set amount of time that the light will be on, that I will be here in this earthly ministry? And during that time that his ministry would shine, nobody could extinguish the light. Nobody could stone him when it was too early. Nothing could extinguish that 12-hour period of time, which was, again, just metaphoric. Until it was time for him to lay down his life. And then once he laid down his life, anyone that had not received his light is going to stumble, and not just a scraping of the knees, this is a stumbling block, the stone of offense. Because you've rejected him. But while the light is there, nothing can stop his ministry from shining the light during that time. So again, there was a fixed time for everything. And there's still a fixed time for everyone. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Everyone you meet, everyone that you have ever met, met there's a fixed amount of time for their life to repent and come to the Savior. Amen? There's a fixed amount of time for us to work while it's daylight. There's a fixed amount of time. God says, he knows how many messages I will preach in a lifetime, and I only have that span of time to do it. I can't do it outside that span. Neither can you. You only have X amount of time to disciple your children. X amount of time to love your spouse. X amount of time to be a light in this world. Fixed for everything. A time to repent. But his sheep, his sheep will not stumble. Not a stumbling block. They will not stumble into hell, for example. They will not stumble because the light of the shepherd goes before them. And we're still in the light, forever in the light. Amen? Amen. We've been brought into the permanent light that started with that fixed time of light when he was the light of the world. Back to ver uh, verse 11 there. Um, pick it up verse 11. Yes. Uh, he goes on to say, These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. 
Jesus is heading back to Judea for a multitude of reasons. Obviously, the cross is now the endpoint destination. But in between the cross, he still has a great love for individual sheep that he's going to touch along the way. And Lazarus is prominent in his mindset. It's not, it's not the only reason he's headed back to Judea, but Lazarus is prominent. And what a statement where he says, our friend Lazarus, um, of, of, remember we, there's two primary uses of the word love in the Greek and the New Testament, agape and phileo. And phileo is that brotherly love. And this is a, a great statement. Our friend Lazarus, a brotherly phileo love. Our friend. He, um, Lazarus is Jesus' friend. The sister said the one you love. He is the one Jesus loves. He's also the friend of Jesus. But Jesus says our friend. That he's not just Jesus' friend. He includes the disciples. Any friend of Jesus is a friend of theirs. And any friend of Jesus is a friend of yours and mine. Any brother and sister that's coming to the faith is our brother and sister. So he's saying our, he's being inclusive there. They've all been brought into one fellowship, one flock, as he said in the previous parable, one family of Christ. Now, Jesus will later say in John chapter 15, verse 5, this beautiful statement, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. What it means is we can walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus. But we also can bear our soul to Jesus. And because he's not just our friend, he's also our savior. He's also our shepherd. He's also our master. He's also our king. But at the same time, we can actually walk beside him like Enoch did in the Old Testament. Walked right on up into heaven. And Abraham, as James uh, chapter 2, verse 223 says, the scripture is fulfilled. That Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. It's not a new concept Jesus is conveying. It is an ancient fact that Everyone who's believed on the Messiah. In the Old Testament, everybody was looking to the cross. Now we look back at the cross. But everyone in both directions, if you're Adam to Jesus, you were looking to the cross. And from 2022 backwards, we're looking back at the cross. The cross is the center point of all of history. And of course, it is where salvation was secured. So everyone who's put their faith in the Messiah is the sons and daughters of God, but we are also, as Abraham was, remember he's the father of faith, listen in the New Testament, we've been brought into being friends with the Lord. Jesus said, I call you friends now. And we're still his servants, but we're servants and his friends and his sons and daughters all at the same time. I, I explain this often time, I say, I wear many hats. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a pastor all at the same time. None of those change the other roles. They're just simultaneous. And we simultaneously have a Savior that is all of those things to us, but yet we are still his friend. Verse 12, the disciples, now when the disciples uh, heard this, they said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get well. You said, he, you said it wasn't to death, and you said that you were going to wake him up. Doesn't he have an alarm clock, right? You know, he's going to wake up eventually. You said it wouldn't be to death. 
Once again, the disciples are explaining to Jesus how things work. They have a lot of experience on earth. They've learned a lot, and their son Jesus, if he's, if he's got an illness, let him sleep it off. We've had the flu before, and we're still alive. You don't really need to go wake him up. He just needs to rest. Let him rest, Jesus. Don't wake him up right now. He's going to get better. This is how it works, Lord. Imagine telling Jesus how sickness and rest works. By the way, saints in Christ will never be part of the second death, which is the lake of fire. And when we die physically, our soul does not sleep. Our soul is immediately, Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you are a believer, and I've done a couple of funerals in the last year uh, for believers, and I know as soon as they die, they're immediately with Jesus. But their body, I've seen their bodies right there in the casket. The body is asleep. The soul is with the Lord. The body sleeps. Even if someone died in the Titanic sinking or 9-11 and their body is dissolved, the body is asleep if they're a believer and God will reconstitute the molecules and bring them back together for a glorified body. The body is asleep. When Jesus says he sleeps, he's talking about the body. At this point, Lazarus is already with God, not really wanting to come back as Jesus is going to bring him back. But the body is asleep. And so saints, when we use that term, they sleep. We're talking about the body. The soul is in the presence of the Lord. Uh, but again, the disciples are telling Jesus, hey, just let him rest. He's going to be okay if you let him rest. They're telling the one who created the human body, the one who's created the, the concept of sleep, the one who said on the seventh day rest, they're telling him how this should go. The illness. You love how Jesus answers this one. They tell him that he's going to rest. Jesus then speaks, verse 14, just, Lord, if he's, if he's sick, just let him rest. In his sleep, verse 14, Jesus turns to them and says plainly, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> no one else knows this. He's still two days away. No one else would know that Lazarus is dead. They still think, based on the original note, He's sick. Jesus said it won't lead to death. Jesus said, well, I'm going to wake him up. As far as they can piece it all together, Lazarus is still asleep, but probably getting better. Jesus says, he's dead. Because he was talking about the body being asleep. Uh, well, they're like, oh, well, that probably changes things. Maybe sleeping it off won't work then. It does change things a bit. But he says, Lazarus is dead. I am glad for your sake that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. You're talking to the good shepherd. He knows everything. He knows what no one else knows. He's the only one that knows that Lazarus is dead. By this time, everyone in Bethany knows. But if you're far away from Bethany, they don't know that. The only people who know are the people in Bethany. But Jesus says he's glad that this will all turn out for good, that he's going to take this seeming tragedy and he's going to deepen their faith. And maybe there's something going on in your life right now that you think, how can this possibly turn out for good? Not only can it turn out for good, for the glory of God, and that if Jesus is glad, you get to be glad. But not maybe yet. 
Right now, it's just trusting. It's just holding on. It's just saying, all right, we've got to follow him all the way to Bethany to see how he's going to do this. That's all you can do. The sheep, now the disciples, they've been duly corrected. Sleeping it off isn't going to work. Let's follow Jesus and see how it will work. Because Jesus, he not only can feed sheep, he not only can lead sheep, he not only can bind the wounds of sheep, he can raise up a sheep that's died if he has to, if he desires to. Now you're going to love Thomas. He's still in a moment here. Verse 16. Thomas is still fixated on Jesus being stoned. He's almost hardly heard what Jesus is talking about. Thomas says, and if we have to die, I'll die with you. Jesus is like, I was talking about Lazarus, and you're still back on this going to Judea, and we're all going to get stoned to death thing. That's just a side note. John, I love that John throws that in there. John's like, and Thomas was fixated on, let us go that we may die with him. I mean, you've got to love that Thomas is bold. He's ready to take it on. But, I don't know, just a footnote. I don't have time to delve into that one. But uh, verse 17, let's pick it up, and we've got to kind of bring it to a close here. Uh, verse 17, if you're taking notes, this last uh, point, a delayed arrival. So when Jesus had came, he found that he had already been, he, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews who had joined the women found around Martha and Mary had come to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went out and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now we'll get to what he says after that two weeks from now, but let's just in these last few verses. Jesus, and now we know he had waited two days where he was, probably beyond the Jordan. It, it appears that it's about a two-day journey, so that gives you the four full days. So Lazarus had probably died soon after he received the urgent message, probably very soon after that. Bethany, as we know, was two, uh, two miles southeast of Jerusalem, very close to Jerusalem. Uh, many in the community are now there to help comfort. They're mourning with the sisters. They have the cousins there. They have the aunts. They have the uncles. They have the neighbors. Everyone is there to mourn with them. Apparently, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were not only hospitable to Jesus, but to have this much of a turnout, they seem to be hospitable to everybody. And they were the kind of people that you don't want to lose. You know, they were like, wow, this is going to be a real impact in the community. Lazarus was a good man in the community. And so people there are very, very distraught with them and trying to comfort them. Uh, now Martha, as you know, she gets a lot of scrutiny for her role back in Luke chapter 10, where she's the one busy and gets all upset. And why is Mary, my sister, uh, doing lazy worship stuff when she should be doing hard work and work stuff, right? And that's basically the way she puts it. And then Jesus puts her in her place. And, you know, she was rushed that day and worried of all kinds of other things. And Mary was there sitting, listening to Jesus, listening to his word, listening to his teaching. And this is my... My view of this over years of, I, I'm sure I'm not alone on this, but it does appear to me that Mary, and we'll see this again in chapter 12, where she's going to pour out that expensive oil and use her own hair to anoint Jesus, which is a huge step of faith because it costs a lot of money 
to, to dump that oil like that. And that it's also a great show of worship. And Mary just has this continual desire to worship Jesus, to adore him, just pour out herself at his feet. And it does appear that at this stage of their life, and I'm not saying this is the way it ends, at this stage of their life, it does appear that Mary is the more spiritually mature of the two. Doesn't mean that Martha's not spiritually mature, but Mary's more spiritually mature. I hate to break it to you, there are people on this earth more spiritually mature than all of us in this room. And some of them are in North Korea and Iran and places like that. They are more spiritually mature than we are. Why? Because they are living by greater faith. And Mary had learned to live more by faith. Martha was still more by sight. It's not that she wasn't, she'd come a long way. I tell them this about our church. We've come a long way, and we have a long ways to go. I've come a long way, and I have a long ways to go. Uh, I don't mind admitting that my brother Sam is more spiritually mature than I am. Doesn't mean he's better, but he is more mature in the faith. And we need Abraham to the faith, don't we? We need the Davids. We need the Pauls that are more mature in the faith. And Mary was a little more, and she never kind of one-upped her sister. She just was always at the feet of Jesus. But Martha did love the Lord. She gets a bad rap, too. Something like Peter does, too. You know, they, they, they love Jesus. And she's a hard worker. She's a tireless worker. We saw that uh, in Luke chapter 10. But she's a pragmatic person. And Jesus is trying to get her to be less pragmatic and more faith. Because some of us are very pragmatic, very analytical, all that kind of stuff. And she also has this problem. She sometimes will speak her mind when Jesus says, no, 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 no. Not everything you think needs to come out. <laughs> Not everything you think needs to be said. But she says it, and no one's going to say it. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. There, I said it. I'm speaking for everybody. No one else does say it. Martha does say it. And Jesus doesn't give her that much of a hard time about it. He just simply says, he'll rise again. Because he's really patient with some of our bad habits still. Yes. And some of where we still open our mouth and insert foot. Brother and sister, understand that um, uh, Martha still had areas to surrender, and so do we. And like the disciples, she tries to educate Jesus with a bit of frustration. If you'd have been here, this is how it would have gone. But she acknowledges his power. She still knows he has the power. She still believes he can do the miraculous. And that's a good thing to still have. All of us in the flesh can get frustrated with things. We can seem to think God is not hearing. We can seem to think he's delayed in his responding. Uh, and we're convinced that he needs to understand it from our viewpoint. I mean, Martha, we sent a note four days ago. Four days ago we sent this note. Why the delay? G. Campbell Morgan said, So we may learn that he often permits us to pass into profounder darkness, into deeper mysteries of pain, in order that we may prove more perfectly His power. Amen. His Amen. power. Amen. I don't know why God allows us to go ten yards further down the field than we thought we'd have to go. Or ten more times around the track than we thought we'd have to run. Sometimes it's not pain. Sometimes it's just frustration, agitation, irritation. And yet it still requires patience, perseverance, and this one big word, trust. Trust. 
Sometimes, if we're honest, we don't trust God. We haven't trusted Him. We trusted Him for salvation, but not for sanctification, and not to get us to point B, C, or D. Jesus was not only glad for the disciples that came with Him, but He's glad for Martha and for Mary and everyone else in Bethany that everyone was going to see God glorified, their faith built up. He said that you would believe. Yeah, they're going to see Him rise again. And it's going to have a huge impact on their faith. I'll close with this. God's delays are not delays. God's delays are not delays. Not from his perspective. God's delays are not delays, but they are God-designed for building our faith. For building our faith. You know probably these two passages. You've probably read them many times. But they're just as true now as when I first got saved in 1995. It was, immediately became one of my life verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. Why? Because our own understanding is not understanding. God has to reshape our understanding to rest and wait patiently for the Lord. Whatever you're going through, I hope God encourages you to, look, He is not delaying. He is God designing, refining you for His glory and our growth. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the fact that you are trustworthy. You are worthy and trustworthy. And Lord, you have no limitations. And so Lord, we ask and we pray that you would continue to show us where we're lacking trust where we're trying to coach you instead of just surrender to you. And Lord, where we have doubted, instead, Lord, where you've asked us to simply believe. And Lord, where we are restless, help us to be waiting patiently. And I pray this for myself and each of my brothers and sisters and all, Lord, that know you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.